Special greetings to you today, friends, as we are in the middle of Holy Week. Um, and I know that we are pretty much focusing on the cross and the response of the disciples to Jesus and uh, also to the message of the cross. Um, but we are still in the middle of a Bible study on Nehemiah. And so I thought, let's just keep that momentum going. Um, you're welcome to listen to this today or anytime over the next few days. Um, and in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, which is where we are at, we will see how the people uh, move from confessing their sins, which was in chapter 9, into making an agreement um, with God, an agreement to obey, and ready to come back to God. So in some way, there's a nice symmetry here with the um, Easter story, where we ourselves throughout the Holy Week experience, as well as um, going through Good Friday and then into Easter Sunday, we also reflect on our own faith and the call to, uh, to come back to Christ in, in that way. So let's just um, pause for a second and pray together. Lord, we thank you that through your Spirit you speak into our lives on all occasions, that it's not just when we are in church, or in a Bible study physically, Lord, but as we come to open your scriptures that you desire to speak to us. And so, Lord, as we reflect on Nehemiah, particularly chapter 10 today, may we find that you speak to us um, as well as also enhancing our experience of Holy Week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we must come back, just as a reminder, but also as an introduction for today, to the last verse of chapter 9, verse 38 of chapter 9, which says, Yet in spite of all, the, all of this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes and Levites and priests. And so this just is a nice bridge between what happened in chapter 9, where the people confess their sins, and, we, and we, as I say, we dealt with that last week. But here, um, as we, we move in, to look at the names of the people who signed the document and also to try and understand a bit deeper the heart of what was happening, um, this verse 38 gives us a nice bridge because what it shows us was the importance of not just saying something, but that also putting it into writing. So we would see this in modern times, I suppose, as, as like a contract, um, that a legal document that when you promise something, that you would also put it in writing. Now that, as we know, is just because of human nature, that I may promise you something today, but tomorrow I change my mind, and then that leaves you stranded. I mean, let's just talk about something, for example, like uh, you have a car that I want to buy or a house. Uh, we could say, well, let's shake on it, and I'll definitely will, will pay you the money, but then that never happens. And so, you know, what's the recourse for someone in that situation? So with that kind of idea, the people of God have confessed their sins. They say, we want to make this all right. And so we're going to put something in writing. And the putting in writing is, so what are we actually committing to? What are the terms of the agreement? Um, there's actually also something here as we, as we look at this. So this was the Israelites, obviously, many, many years uh, before Jesus and the disciples and many years before we even um, you know, came into being. But, but remember that when John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, um, began the covenant prayer 250 years ago, that the covenant prayer was also an idea not so much to make a new covenant, 
um, in that way. But to say to the people of God, this is what we are ascribing to. This is how we want to, to show God and to show ourselves that we're taking this relationship with Jesus seriously. And so then we have the, you know, the beginnings of, of the Methodist covenant prayer, which we, we, which we do in our tradition every year at some point. Normally in the beginning of the year, we say the covenant prayer. Um, and those words are very solemn prayer, uh, words, but they remind us of, um, of what we are committing to. So um, I came across a quote from somebody. It said this, that if we are all talk and no action, then there is no progress and no fruit. And I like that. And like I say, it's not mine, but you're welcome to remember the, the word. So if we are all talk and no action, then there is no progress and no fruit. And this is kind of the essence of what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 10. So verse 1 says the document was ratified and sealed with the following names. And we start with Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah. And then we have the priests who were sounded was Zedekiah, Seraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah. And then from verse 3 all the way to the end of verse 27, we have a long list of names. In fact, there are 84 names in total. So just to save time and also to not embarrass myself with all of the pronunciation, you can read those names yourself. But just notice they're in three big groups, one as priests, one as Levites, and the other are the leaders. And we just assume that's the leaders of the community. But these are all the people representing their families that came forward to sign the document. And I think that putting a name on a document is also a very powerful thing. Um, you know, like I said earlier on, even when you do a legal transaction, uh, transaction nowadays, you need to put your uh, your full name, your ID number, and so on. So there is this commitment to what you're signing. I mean, if the Israelites had just said, okay, yeah, we're going to put into writing the things we would like to do and we'll leave it somewhere around in the temple, well, there wouldn't have been ownership of that. But as each person um, saw their name written down or if they were able to write their name on that, they suddenly said, okay, well, we, we are committed to this and we will try our best to make our family committed to what we are promising. And these changes would also reveal the, the extent of their faith in God. So verse 28 carries on, so I've skipped down to 28. The rest of the people, that's all the rest of the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, uh, sorry, all the fellow Israelite nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of our Lord. So that's kind of the essence of what they were agreeing to sign. Um, just one thought also before we carry on is that it's there are a certain group of peoples whose names are on the document but everybody is making this commitment it's a community-based thing um, and it reminds us also in our modern context of the importance of belonging to a greater body i think under COVID times we have experienced the lack of this so yes it's been wonderful to um 
to have services online and to, to watch via Zoom or YouTube and I mean, even to, to share a Bible study on, on a phone, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity and a great privilege to use social media and technology in this way. But there is something very special about joining together in community where you can see people face to face and you can really exercise your faith in the body of Christ. And so collectively, the people are now um, making this commitment. And in essence, what they're saying is that we've realized our priorities had got skewed. We had taken our eye off God, and now we want to make these um, right again. We want to change our priorities back to being God-focused, and this is what we plan to do. I mean, the language, language you can see there is that um, we solemnly promised to carefully follow the commands, laws, and regulations of the Lord their God, which is all the things that had come beforehand. So we're just assuming here, but it's the word from the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, where, where God had given instructions through Moses and through the prophets of how they should live their lives in order to be fruitful in the promised land. Obviously, that hadn't worked out because they had disobeyed God and then been taken into exile. And now the whole thing of returning and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, there was constant proof of how they had taken their eyes off God and they'd really paid the price for that. And so as they go through these vows, um, the New Living Translation says the vow of the people, we, we see some of the things they're committing to. Verse 30 is, is not to intermarry with people of other nations. Now that was explicit in the commands of God before they entered the promised land. Um, and you know it was something that had really watered down their faith over the years. And, and we understand this, friends. I mean, Paul also speaks about um, how one should be careful of being unequally yoked. Now, I think just from a very, one has to obviously be sensitive about this, but from a very practical point of view, we have all seen this at some point in our lives or in our communities, where one person, let's say um, the, the husband is a committed Christian, but the wife is not a Christian. So you see that over time you can, or maybe initially you can try and make things work out. The husband wants to go to church, but the wife doesn't. But over time, it slowly can become uh, complicated. And then when the children come along, you know, what happens about church on a Sunday or, you know, all of those kind of things. So this is something we could interpret for our own times. Um, and you may agree or disagree on that. But this is what they were vowing to, is that they want to do, put things right again, that the future generations would marry um, Jewish folk, people from their faith, and so they would then be able to um, understand you know, the importance of faith in their families. Also, verse 31, this had to do, so it's, it's moving now from relationships into, um, into business and in a business level, where they were saying that when neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we would not buy from them or any other holy day. So reclaiming the Sabbath and realizing that that business doesn't need to be 24-7. Now, we could actually preach a whole sermon on this, I think. But what they were saying is that, God, we have actually become very self-reliant 
and that's got us nowhere. We've taken our eyes off you and we've made business and making money our God. So what we are promising to do in the future is that there will be one day in the week, which is the Sabbath, where even when people come and want to engage with us and buy and sell, we will say, look, no, we're keeping this day holy. Because even then, we are reminding ourselves that, God, you will provide. Yes, we could have made an extra couple of bucks on the Sabbath, but we entrusting you to provide for us enough over the six other days. And then it goes even further to say that even every seventh year, which would be called the sabbatical or um, a furlough, we will even forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And that's an interesting thing too, to really say, Lord, that, that we will have enough because you will take care of us. In, in a, a New Testament kind of faith, we would say that Jesus becomes our rest. So we don't have to earn our salvation or don't have to work, work, work the whole time, but that in following Christ, Christ will help us to get all things done and Christ will provide for our need. Um, just another little side note on the seventh year there. This um, is, is the reason why, certainly in the Methodist tradition and some other churches, that pastors or people in full-time ministry are given um, a sabbatical or a furlough every seventh year. Not the whole year. I mean, I wish that, but are given just a few extra a week's leave to in order to rest um, and to recoup and just to prepare for you know for the next part of the journey. Verse thirty-two, um, we assume the responsibility of carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God, for the bread set out on the table, for the grain offerings, for the offerings of the Sabbath, uh, the holy offerings, sin offerings, all the duties of the house of God. So this, this interesting verse 32 and 33 may seem a little bit foreign for us, and particularly if we are in church communities that are very active and um, where you have you know, the gift of a number of people involved in making sure that the church just runs smoothly from, you know, from worship teams and door stewards and communion stewards and offering stewards. I mean, you know, the, the, whole, you know um, the whole bank shoot. We all are so important in helping the house of God to, to run smoothly. We gather that this had been totally neglected. So in this promise, in this vow, they're saying, look, we're going to make this right. We're going to make sure that when we come to worship, um, there aren't things missing. We will give our part. So it's also, in a way, a greater trust, releasing some of their possibility of cash, but also their time to helping the house of God run effectively. Now, uh, one of the commentators that I was just reading through in preparation for this makes note of the fact that the, that phrase, house of God, is mentioned nine times in the verses from sort of 32 onwards. Now, you can, I haven't counted them, but maybe you could do that if you're really bored. But the whole idea is that this vow that the people are making is a great renewal. It's a restoring of their spiritual priority. And for the Jewish folk, this all revolved around the temple or the house of God. Um, and so we will see this um, coming through, the thread that runs through these uh, final verses. Verse 34 uh, speaks about that there will be a contribution of wood to burn on the altar. And this goes back to another portion in the Old Testament where um, it was requested or asked that the 
there would always be a fire burning on the altar of the Lord, 24-7. Now, clearly that hadn't happened. The fire had gone out. And maybe there's a, also a spiritual reflection on that, that um, you know, when the spark dies, when the flame dies, you know, how do we get that to be revived? So we could, we could do our own reflection on that ourselves. Uh, verse 35, we assume the responsibility of bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. This is, is where we have the conversation about the tithes, where the people were saying, look, we have kind of been selfish over the last however long. Um, we recognize now that in bringing the first fruits of our crops, we are saying, God, thank you. First of all, we are grateful, grateful that you have provided for us. And also this, this greater reliance that you will help us to cope and survive with the other nine-tenths of, of what we have. Uh, the same way, verse 36, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the herds and the flocks uh, to the house of God, to the priests ministering there. And that is also something that was required of them from the law uh, previously. Verse 37, moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of God to the priests, the first of our ground meal, the fruit of all our trees, the new wine, the olive oil. We will bring a tithe of our crops. Um, and a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions. And so it carries on like this. But the final word, um, which is important for us in the last line, verse 39, um, is this, it says, so we promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. The NIV says, we will not neglect the house of God. And friends, I think this for us, uh, although the Israelites were, were talking about it physically as the temple of God and their, their worship, it, it's, a, it's a great reminder for us of, of what are we putting first in our lives, you know, for the Israelites, they were saying, okay, now God's ways need to move up our list of priorities again. We've put God towards the bottom, and that hasn't worked out for us. So let's put first things first. And if you like, the, the challenge comes for us individually, um, although God has never called us only in an individual sense. He's also called us as communities. But I think in our Western tradition, we often relate more to, first of all, a personal relationship with Jesus and then a corporate relationship. But it, it's the, the challenge for us to, to move from self-interest to God's interest or to God's ways. And uh, the question I could ask us, ask myself, and this is also the Lenten reflection, is, is how are we doing on, on that score? You know, um, how are we doing in terms of putting God first in our lives? We look at the response of the disciples in, in the Holy Week period and how they responded to Jesus, how they respond to the cross. We also, on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, look at the response of people who were kind of on the fringes. Um, the Roman centurion is one of them. But this is always the question that, that comes back to us time and time again, is, is how are we doing in terms of honoring God or are we neglecting God? And we will go through times in our life where we are perhaps more on fire, and then, then we become a bit lukewarm. But the idea is that when we read Nehemiah 10, we see the people realizing that they had sinned, chapter 9, but then wanting to make things right. And I guess the joy of Easter for us too is that God 
enables us to make things right, that we are given this, this opportunity to rise again, to let the old part of our lives die and the new uh, to be given birth. And so I'm going to leave it there today as we look at chapter 10. I invite you to keep reading it and as always to do your own study in that. Um, but may God bless you as you journey through the rest of Holy Week. If you are based in the Fishhook and Simonstown communities, uh, please can I just remind you that you're welcome to come this evening, the Wednesday evening. Our service is at the Simonstown Methodist Church at 6 p.m. And then tomorrow evening, which is Thursday evening, the Tenebrae service will be in the Fishhook Methodist Church also at 6 p.m. And then on Good Friday, our services are at 8 a.m., in, in Fishhook, and then 9.30 in Simonstown. But if you're outside of Fishhook, I just pray that you would find a church community that you're able to worship with and that you would have a blessed Easter with those who are also on the same journey of faith with, with us. May you be blessed, friends. God bless you. Bye-bye.